Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Oceanside, California, as my family and I continue our cross-country trip. This will be our last episode in Oceanside before we make our way to Scottsdale uh, for the holiday season. It's mid-December, just as a point of reference, and it is truly a privilege to welcome my friend, mentor, colleague, Andy Shandlin, who's the Vice President of Alumni Relations at Brown University. Good morning, Brent. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you again. It is great to see you. And I think some of our listeners would know this, but uh, as a point of reference, our company Evertrue is named after Brown's fight song, which is Evertrue to Brown, which plays when the football team scores touchdowns, which I did one time my junior year against Dartmouth. But who's keeping track? Um, So, Andy, look, in your role as an alumni professional, you are constantly having opportunities over your career to hear about people's stories, to hear about their journeys, to try to uh, understand what makes them tick in general and in relation to uh, the uh, ongoing connection to Brown. Uh, And I just wanna learn a little bit more about your story. I wanna go back to Nyack High, who was that guy? (laughs) And tell me a little bit about your own journey to Brown University. That's funny, Nyack High, Nyack, New York. Um, that guy was a nerd who um, tried to keep one one hand in a lot of the different cliques and groups uh, in the school. You know, there were the artsy music kids, and then there were the the nerdy um, test prep kids, and then there was the uh, I was on the soccer team, so there were the, like the jocks, and then there was periodic parties. So trying to do a little of everything. I'm picturing a Venn diagram with just one human right in the middle. Is that right? (laughs) There, there was a small group of us who tried to um, calibrate um, the, the social networks before social networks were a thing that we all knew and talked about. Um, But uh, no, you know, I really was just, um, you know, went to, I had the good fortune to uh, go to a good public high school in New York state. Um, And then when it was time to, kind of do the next thing, never really remember talking about it, just kind of was in that social environment where it was like, well, now you go to college. Um, and so, you know, applied to universities and, and made the right choice and uh, was lucky enough to, to get into Brown. Um, and uh, that was 19, uh, freshman year at Brown was 1982. <laughs> and so when you think about those four years, you know, what were some of the highlights? Um, because obviously, uh, you have had such a um, profound career in the sector and are one of the thought leaders in the sector, but I suspect that your uh, belief in the importance of this space and connection among uh, graduates around this uh, concept of alma mater had to be formed somewhat by your own experience at Brown. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's funny that you mentioned high school because I do still keep in touch with several of my high school friends. And although it's a a public high school with no alumni association or alumni um, organization, that identity is also embedded earlier than my university experience. I will say in hindsight, yes, the Brown experience um, obviously was formative in how I think about um, what turned out to be my career work, which is, you know, why, why do people who happen to have gone to the same university, which on some level is largely can be a coincidence, why do they feel connected and bonded and why do they want to help each other and be supportive? Why do they want to help the institution? Um, you know, in terms of my experience, you know, I, I knew vaguely that I thought it would be interesting to do something related to something international. I ended up as a, an international relations 
student at Brown. Um, I did a, a, a junior year abroad program in, in Belgium, um, you know, studying European Union and NATO and, and things like that. And um, that kind of gave me that experience that I wanted with learning about and being exposed to the international aspect of it. Um, but it also showed me that maybe I didn't want to go and be a foreign service officer or join the yeah. state department or something like that. So uh, it, it was helpful actually. So instead of becoming a foreign service officer, you became the director of alumni education at Brown university um, a couple of years after graduating. And uh, I'm not sure what a director of alumni education is or does. So why don't you uh, enlighten us uh, on what that first role was like? Yeah, it was really interesting because that was at a time that was, um, I started working at Brown the first time I worked there in 1989 and I worked there for almost eight years. And in the early nineties, there was um, a strong movement among folks who had a lot of experience as advancement executives, people who had maybe entered their um, careers in higher ed in the 60, 1960s um, and early 1970s to think about the fact that, look, most of the people who go to a university go there because it's a university. They don't necessarily go there. There are some exceptions. They don't go there because they're on athletic scholarship or because of the geographic location solely. It's mostly because of the educational aspect. So why should that educational relationship end merely because they have graduated? That should continue forever and you should always have access to the academic and teaching and learning resources of your alma mater. That sounds more common and sort of more self-evident today than it was in the early 90s. And there was a strong movement to ensure that alumni relations programs always um, incorporate and put forth uh, prominently alumni access to faculty members, to teaching, to research, and to education with and from other alumni. Um, this is, you know, before YouTube, before iTunes U, before online courses, before MOOCs, before the internet. Yeah. It, it wasn't that obvious. And so the idea of always sending a professor on an alumni travel program was critical. Um, ensuring that each alumni regional club had at least one faculty presenter or speaker every year. Um, the support for book clubs or discussion groups or mini courses or yeah. summer programs on campus with faculty. All of those things were important. And so Brown had a position. Um, I was the, the first person to have that position, which was alumni education director and to connect alumni with the learning resources of the school. I mean, it's amazing when you think about where we are now and how important lifelong learning is. It's, it's such a buzzword, but when you think about um, how pervasive that is, it's almost, uh, in, you know, as if you were decades uh, ahead of uh, our time in a certain regard. Obviously, the way, like the ability to scale that kind of offering was greatly limited by technology. It had to be quite costly uh, to reach a probably very small fraction of the uh, alumni population relative to what's possible today. But, um, you know, maybe further on in the discussion, we can kind of circle back to just this idea of lifelong learning and as a Brown alumnus, why is it four years, get the degree and, you know, maybe there's a master's program along the way, but uh, for the most part, I, I shift from student to alumnus. What if I were sort of always a student? 
Yeah, and that transition from, I mean, this comes up really regularly now in staff meetings and, and conversations with volunteers, that transition from being a student to being an alum is much more um, gradual, it's more blurred, it's um, less clear cut than it used to be even you know, 25 years ago when it was sort of like, you're a student, you're a student, you're a student, boom. You graduate, you go to commencement, you move the tassel across to the other side of the mortarboard, and now you're in a lump. And it's like, you're either one or the other. And I think technology helped to blur those lines. If you think about the fact that, um, you know, a lot of university students and even some high school students today have LinkedIn profiles. And that idea yeah. that they, they know or have some idea of what networking is or why you need to do it, that wasn't true 20 or 15 years ago. And I think that that's become more true and the ways in which alumni interact with students and, and get involved with the life of students before they graduate has increased and the number of ways in which they do that has increased over time. So, and I, all of which I think is good because it sends the message that it's a continuum. It's right. not like you're either in one group or in the other, that they're separate, that they have different benefits and privileges and access. It's one group, it's a community, it's a lifelong family. And that's the philosophy and if we can you know, kind of uh, bring that to life, then we're doing, a, we're doing our job. Like many advancement professionals, you started at your alma mater, right? There's that natural transition. It's comfortable. You know, the people, the buildings, <laughs> the buzzwords, the traditions. Um, and you then, uh, after uh, over 10 years in Providence, made the move to the University of Michigan, where you took this alumni education expertise, um, added in some travel uh, responsibilities, um, to one of the largest, uh, uh, maybe most prolific alumni associations in the world. Uh, and, you know, that had to be, I, I, there's just something comfortable about your own institution um, to make that kind of leap where it's culturally different, where uh, you don't know anybody, none of the buildings, the buzzwords, the traditions and cultures. What is it like, not necessarily just in your personal experience, but I'm sure you've talked about this with other peers, just making that leap from something so familiar to so foreign and trying to quickly um, get up to speed so that you can deliver an authentic programming experience. Yeah, that, that's a really important point. Um, I will say um, I, I didn't, it wasn't that I knew nobody, I knew one person, which was the um, leader of the alumni effort at Michigan, Steve Grafton, um, who uh, was a real mentor to me and a real um, uh, an inspiration professionally. Um, Steve, encouraged me to take the leap, to leave Brown. But the thing to remember is that in the mid nineties, that was 1996, um, alumni relations was not as professionalized as it is today. There weren't sort of, there wasn't conversation about best practices or industry standards. Um, and it was uncommon for someone to work at a school that was not their alma mater in the alumni field. For me, it was, yeah, it was a huge, you know, I, I changed to a different part of the country. I moved to the Midwest. Um, I went from a private university to a public. I went from a medium small institution to a very large institution in terms of student enrollment. The alumni population was much bigger. Everything about it was different. Um, I loved going to Michigan. It was hard at first, but the thing about it was that it gave me the opportunity to sort of start to understand that there are things that are just generally true of alumni communities. There are things that you can do effectively in alumni engagement, even if you yourself are not 
a product of that institution because there are some things that work at many places or most places. And then by the same token, there are things that will only be unique to a particular institution. And being able to tell which is which actually makes it possible for someone who's not an alum of a particular institution to work in, to contribute to, or to lead an alumni effort at that institution effectively. Um, and that was yeah. sort of the start of that realization. And I probably bring this up too much and make it a bigger deal than it should be. I mean, if you think about yourself as a community builder, as a marketer in a certain regard, right? Marketers have to constantly go from one brand to another and get up to speed and understand what makes a certain audience tick. And then, you know, try to apply a common set of principles that are tailored to that community. So this happens all the time in the commercial sector, but for some reason, I don't know, there's, there's something about that alumni identity that makes it seem more profound when you're making this professional leap in the advancement space. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I don't have much expertise uh, in the private sector aspects of the marketing question, but I will say as a, a customer of retail businesses or commercial products and services, for me, it's a pragmatic thing, right? Which is, well, you know, which, which product or service can I choose that will do the trick most effectively? To the extent, you know, that once you're locked in as an alumnus of an institution, you're always an alum of that institution. Um, yeah, you can add a degree somewhere else or affiliate more with one than the other. But the point is, you know, you're kind of linked potentially to that institution forever. Um, and as a result, you have a prior relationship or a personal identity that's connected to it. Now, that depends largely on the experience you had when you were a student at that institution. And I do think that one thing we've learned over the years I've been doing alumni relations is the student experience is probably the single most formative influence on the quality and um, uh, the uh, degree of alumni affiliation later in life. So you can have a great alumni newsletter, website, event invite, volunteer board, but that in and of itself is not enough to get most people excited about being connected to their alma mater. They have to already have had a feeling that they got a great education. They made lifelong connections. They started to come into their own as a student at that institution. And it was a positive experience. Um, that's the raw material that you then build on with these other sort of uh, interactions later in life. I love it. And so you spent this time at Michigan in this, um, let's call it narrow sort of, um, sliver or silo of the sector oriented around alumni education and travel, then you took a role at Caltech that ended up becoming um, broader in that you actually started to assume some fundraising responsibilities um, in addition to broader alumni uh, engagement um, coverage uh, or leadership, not sort of just in, in this one lane. And I'm curious what it was like making the leap to Caltech, which is uh, obviously uh, in many ways, the polar opposite of Michigan in a, in a certain regard. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the role I took at Caltech was executive director of the Alumni Association. So I oversaw all of alumni relations. Now, the difference was that, you know, one of the ways in which Caltech is very different from Michigan is Caltech is very, very small. A lot of people who aren't familiar with California Institute of Technology confuse it sometimes with, you know, University of California campuses or Cal Poly or something. Caltech is a small private STEM almost exclusively STEM focused institution um, with like, when I was there, there were 935 undergraduate students 
and 20,000 alumni. So it, it, it's a pretty compact um, institution. How many, uh, how many graduating uh, or, or how many students at Nyack High? Uh, I, I try to remember. I think we had like uh, 1,250 or something. Okay. So, <laughs> so slightly larger than Caltech. All right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So Caltech is small. But the thing about my role at Caltech was even though it was small, I did oversee all of the alumni relations operation. Your reference to the fundraising responsibilities was that while I was there because of transitions during a campaign um, with some senior development folks, um, I did take on the interim role uh, of AVP for um, development. But I'll be honest, I didn't have frontline fundraising responsibilities. And to this day in my career, I've never been officially responsible for making an ask or soliciting a gift from someone. Not that I haven't done it and been successful, but, but it hasn't been my formal role. What I did do at Caltech was manage many of the staff who were involved with things like advancement communications and annual giving so that I had oversight of that um, although I wasn't myself on the front lines of fundraising. Um, and so I did get a better understanding professionally and personally of the relationship between alumni engagement and fundraising. And I will say that that was also at a time, 1999-ish, um, uh, that uh, early 2000s, that alumni relations was only just starting at a lot of institutions to overcome that identity of being sort of separate and arm's length and different and behind a barrier that was not part of fundraising, that it became okay to say, this is alumni relations and we are part of the fundraising efforts of the institution. Right. Um, I would like to think that today that's normal and understood. There are still cultural influences yeah. in various institutions that make that easier or harder. Um, but at the time, that was starting to be sort of understood that you needed the alumni team to be on board with some of the fundraising goals and vice versa, because uh, it's a two-way street. Andy, can I just ask, um, you've, you've come up the ranks and you've been one of the leaders in the alumni relations field. Do you regret not carrying a portfolio along the way or not having that frontline fundraising um, experience? Because there aren't too many people that you know, have the career that you've had that, that never, um, you know, I, I don't know, I feel like some people feel like they're obligated at some point to show that you can do fundraising, et cetera. Um, I, I'm just curious. I've never asked you that before, but. No, um, yeah, you know, it's been a while since I thought about that. I, I would say this. Um, I think that if I had had a sort of a, you know, if, uh, carried a, an advanced a development portfolio or had fundraising prospects assigned to me, I would probably be a, a more effective alumni executive. Um, having said that, if you're in and around something for enough time, like 30 years, <laughs> um, you start to understand and recognize what it is that makes it work and what the, what the trends are and what the best practices are. So I, I don't think, um, I don't think I, I missed out on anything, but I will say that it, it makes sense. And I would encourage, um, people who are earlier in their alumni relations or advancement career to actually have that experience and to take that on, because I think it does give you a more holistic understanding of the ways in which advancement integrates its different functions mm -hmm. and not just fundraising, not just alumni relations, but also communications around advancement and also information services and the use of data and information. Um, all of those things are a package that used to be much more siloed 
Right. And to, to be truly competitive today, an advancement operation needs to have people who understand how those things are integrated and how they can be integrated even more effectively in the future. So I would encourage alumni professionals not to think of fundraising as something different or apart from engagement. Um, it's, it's hand in glove and it's part of the advancement profession for sure. The Probably the closest you got to leadership in the development space was at, during your time at Carnegie Mellon where you were an AVP for alumni relations, but as is the case at some institutions, annual giving was in that portfolio. And so um, were you, I don't know, nervous about that? Was that a big <laughs> leap to take? Because it was, you know, it was a bigger portfolio than you've had in the past. It was a big leap and yet it was totally doable. And the reason is, again, I had another another mentor and a positive influence on my career at Carnegie Mellon. Robbie Baker Kosak was the VP for advancement. And Robbie, she um, had the vision of trying out this integrated alumni relations and annual giving office. So that it wasn't just one person overseeing two offices. It was actually one team whose personnel and org chart was integrated to see what it would look like if you actually did alumni relations and annual giving truly together. It was a new concept. And what I said to her during the sort of interview, the courting process where we went back and forth about, you know, is this a good fit? Would you try this? Is this of interest? I said to her, what do you think will happen if you integrated alumni relations and annual giving in the way that you're talking about? And she said, I don't know, let's find out. You know, and I love that experimental mindset and that willingness to stick your neck out. Um, and you can do that at a place where annual giving is strong and where alumni relations is established. And yet I give her credit for taking a risk because she didn't have to make that experiment or take that leap. They could have continued with the sort of typical bifurcated org chart. Mm. Um, but she thought it might make sense based on her instincts and experience and her knowledge of the institution. Having said that, I think, you know, I was there like a little over three years, I think, you know, we spent the first year kind of assessing the landscape and figuring it out. The second year structuring that integration and moving the parts around and the third year doing an integrated piece of work, at which point, you know, Robbie left after many years at the institution, a new president came on board. There was a new AVP in development and, <laughs> So I was like, okay, well, you know, I kind of moved the parts around, the pieces are in place, I'm gonna go move on. And that's when I shifted my own career focus. Right. Um, I will say that what we did learn was that it would take a while before you knew whether this was working or how it was affecting annual giving, participation, alumni engagement, um, because we didn't learn that much in the short period that we were actually in that operational mode. Um, it, 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 we thought we would know more, but I think we found out as we were doing it, it's going to be a while before we truly understand the longer term strategic effects of this kind of integration. So, Fair enough. In, sort of in parallel at that time, you uh, really started, I, I think, emerging as a public voice in the sector. You started Alumni Futures which was one of the first, if not the first blogs, you know, not sort of within the, uh, the case uh, structure community, but really independently uh, created uh, to, uh, I don't know, just be a, a, a platform for you to share your perspective, to bring in uh, other thinkers that you admired. Um, what inspired you to do 
uh, to start Alumni Futures. And you continue your writing on LinkedIn today, which we'll talk about. Um, but when you think about the impact that Alumni Futures had, I doubt that you started it thinking that it would have, uh, you know, what a great way to build your own network or to elevate your personal brand. I suspect it was like many people, you just had a point of view on something you care about and then good things emerge from that. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, Alumni Futures, I started when I was still at Caltech um, and I don't want to say it was like 2008 maybe or something like that. But before that, if you go back to the 90s, um, one of the Ivy League alumni relations conferences one summer when I was still at Brown in the 90s, we discovered that we had all gotten email because this was a new thing in the mid nineties. And so we exchanged email addresses and somebody said, let's set up an email discussion group where we can message each other. So I used the listserv software at Brown to kind of create the list. Um, and that was the birth of alumni L which became a very big listserv uh, for alumni professionals. I think originally we had like nine people on it. And it eventually, by the time I was working at Michigan around 1999, it ended up with like 12 or 1300 members. Wow. I turned it over to Case. Case ended up replacing it with some of the web-based discussion forums that they got later. Alumni Futures was my personal sort of reaction to the fact that a lot of the, almost all of the questions in the discussions online among alumni professionals, whether it was Case, um, you know, Alumni L or later the Case-based forums, a lot of them were sort of like, has anyone done X before? And if so, how did you do it? And There's then, literally, can I copy and steal something? Basically. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. And it was okay because we weren't competing like, with each other. It was for, like, you a, know. like a recipe board. Like, hey, who's got a recipe? You know, share your favorite recipe, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Asking somebody what recipe is tried and true and has been in your family for many years is very different from saying, if you wanted to make something that tasted a certain way, what would that recipe potentially include? And that was what I was in, interested in. I didn't want to hear as, as much as I had about after at that point, you know, 15 years or 18 years about like what a school did in 1980 or 1990. I wanted to hear what people were thinking we needed to do in the future. And that's why I called it Alumni Futures, because it was not about what have you already done that we know works? Because now you're just reproducing something in the past. I wanted it to be more about like, what if we tried this? Do you think that would work? Is there any rationale for sticking our necks out in this direction? Um, and to just kind of shift the focus of the conversation to be a little bit more up to date and a little less traditional. It turned out that that actually was also fed by the fact that we were seeing the advent of Facebook. We were seeing... Um, LinkedIn, and then soon after that, Twitter and some of the other social um, platforms online. And they were starting to influence the effectiveness of really traditional, tried and true, old-fashioned, face-to-face engagement activities. So I think it became more urgent for us to figure out what's our role vis-a-vis -vis technology and some of these other ways that alumni can engage because it turned out, guess what? People don't just want to talk to their alma mater. <laughs> they want to talk to their friends and their professional colleagues and their community members and their neighbors and so on. So, so we, we had more competition all of a sudden. Well, in the spirit of you contemplating what the future might look like, um, this was at a time when I was contemplating what the future might look right. like. And I suspect that if it weren't for alumni futures, um, <laughs> our mutual friend, Travis Warren, probably wouldn't have thought to introduce us. And just as a point of reference, I met Andy at a hotel 
lobby at a case conference in mid 2010 when I was just uh, just starting the concept of Evertrue. We were really um, at the very, very beginning. Um, but I do think that it was the fact that you had put forth your public um, ideas uh, that uh, surfaced um, you uh, not only as a Brown alumnus and as, as a sort of leader in the space, but that um, inspired Travis Warren, a mutual contact to connect us. Uh, and really, uh, I feel like I've been on the on the entrepreneurial journey alongside uh, you know you since that time. Um, now you did make a pivot uh, into the um, into the consulting world, and you did some work with a company called Switchboard as well. So you've you've served in you know inside the institution. You've served for um, you know a period, really collaborating uh, you know as a vendor partner, um, and you've also been a consultant and. You know, there are pros and cons to all of that. I suspect many advancement professionals consider, you know, might the grass be greener elsewhere, whether that elsewhere is uh, with a vendor or whether that elsewhere is with a consulting firm. And, and there are certainly pros and cons to each. I'm just curious if you'd um, share a little bit about what inspired you to, um, you know, kind of, I mean, you worked with GGNA, so not necessarily hang your own shingle, but in a certain regard, you've got to hang your own shingle anytime that you make a leap like that. Yeah, I did actually. I left Caltech in 2010 and I actually started my consulting work at that time because I had done a couple of projects on the side where people would say like, hey, could you come to campus for a day and write up some, you know, comments about our alumni program? I need to give it to my VP or to the president and make the case for more staff or budget or whatever. Um, so I had done some one-off projects while working full-time at Caltech. In 2010, I took the alumni futures brand, if you will, which was my blog and website. And I made that my consulting business. And for a year and a half before going to Carnegie Mellon, I worked as a consultant full-time by myself for myself. Um, and that was instructive. One of the things I learned was that the alumni profession, although it was changing, did not have the consultative sort of culture and mindset that would enable somebody as an individual practitioner, this was 2010, 2011, to make a living and you know my, my daughter was <laughs> entering her her teenage years and would soon be um you know generating invoices for college tuition and stuff and i needed to pay the bills so i thought you know i like the work i like the idea of being a consultant um to other institutions but from a business standpoint it's tricky that's when i went to work at carnegie mellon i will say that i went back to consulting full-time at the um, invitation of my friend and our, our friend and colleague, Chris Marshall. Chris, who had been the alumni executive at Lehigh University and then later at Cornell, was somebody who I knew and and uh, worked with and trusted and respected over the years. Chris had gone to Grenzebach Glear and Associates, GGNA, first. And GGNA was a well-established, long-time consulting firm in the philanthropy space um, with a focus on higher ed. And Chris had created their alumni relations practice within the firm. And it had grown so fast that he needed someone to help him out. And that's when I went there to do full-time consulting. But instead of doing it by myself, I was doing it as part of a large firm that was well-established and made it um, structurally different uh, uh, you know, in terms of the work itself. I, I will say this about consulting. I, I think that, um, one thing that's important to keep in mind, because I field requests or, or have conversations 
pretty regularly with advancement professionals who say, I'm thinking of getting into consulting as the next phase of my career. You've done that already. What do you say? And one thing I always say to people is be aware, because I was not at first, that it's one thing to know a lot about your profession, whether it's philanthropy or it's alumni engagement or something else. But consulting as a profession is its own expertise. So just knowing a lot doesn't make you an effective consultant. You have to know how to bring clients along to a solution, how to ask good questions, how to synthesize solutions, how to present your findings. Um, so there's a whole other set of competencies that come with the consulting profession that you don't necessarily know just because you're an expert on some subject matter area. Yeah, I mean, look, when you're a consultant, you're a marketer, you're a salesperson, you're a, you're a client delivery person, you're an ongoing uh, relationship manager, like it really service. is a yeah, full right. stack, you know, you've got to do it all, which for some people, that's what they love. Uh, you know, and, and you have maybe a, a leader like Chris or a brand like GGNA to provide some credibility and air cover, but mostly um, you're, you're doing it all. And um, yeah, I think you're right. People need to um, just be very thoughtful about whether that is aligned with their interests and skill set. Right. And, and the other angle on it, because since you mentioned sales and, and marketing is depending on your circumstances, when you need to generate new business and bring in a contract or a client or a new customer, part of it will be helped if you have a firm with a marketing team or a sales team. But the reality is it, it's one part, what's your reputation, experience, and profile? Do people understand that you've got the background to provide them with what they need as a client? And then one part, um, what is your experience in providing those solutions? So when you're starting out, it's really hard because you don't have the experience as a consultant. You just have the experience being an alumni executive or a fundraiser and so on. So it, it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg at the beginning where you want to say, I've got experience with advancement. But if someone says, how many consulting projects have you done? If that number is zero or something very small, you're, you're going to have a harder time closing the deal and um, signing signing the contract. Right. So it's, it's not as... Um, it's challenging. It's difficult. And I will say, though, that once you are in that space, for me, it was very rewarding. And I found it to be very um, satisfying to be able to kind of share some of the findings I had learned through being a, uh, an alumni professional with other institutions and organizations outside of higher ed as well. Okay, favorite memory uh, as a consultant, whether it was Alumni Futures or with GGNA, any <laughs> I, I, projects or engagements that you look back on and say, wow, I really, I made a difference or I really enjoyed it. I have to say that there's a personal connection to one of my engagements that I didn't see coming, which is um, my daughter uh, graduated from Drexel University and decided that um, it would be, uh, her next step would be to pursue a master's degree in a com computer science related field. Um, in Europe. And she ended up actually enrolling in a university in Finland, a place I had never been to. Um, and to, you know, my, my wife and I decided we would go over there and get her situated when she moved over to Finland for her, her master's program. Um, and two days before that, I saw a question on one of the case discussion forums where somebody asked a, a fundamentals of engagement. And I answered the question and the person replied to me and personal directly and said, that was that was just the information we were looking for. Thanks for answering our question. We are based in Finland. And if you're ever in Helsinki, 
look us up and we'll buy you a cup of coffee. So I replied and I said, how about Tuesday at 1030? <laughs> because, we, you know, so uh, met up. Um, Teppo Heskinen was the gentleman from Alto University in Helsinki. Um, had a great conversation, met one of his colleagues. And then at the Case Europe conference that fall, where I was representing uh, GGNA, um, I had a conversation where it turned out that Alto University was looking for a, a, a long-term consulting engagement to help them with their advancement operation, with strategy and staffing and, and so on. Um, and so I wrote up a proposal, we got the contract, and I ended up having the opportunity to work on a really interesting project for a great university. Uh, Alto is, is a great school um, that happened to be in Finland. So I had the opportunity to go on site, visit the client, do workshops, training, meetings, presentations. And when I was there, add a couple of days before or after the client engagement to hang out with my daughter who was living in incredible. So uh, I mean, a that, couple that of was things there really rewarding. one. <laughs> it seems like that was really the moment of intersection of <laughs> your international relations degree and your alumni <laughs> relations expertise. Um, I also have to say though, Andy, there's something really profound there, which is if you hadn't answered the question on the case board, this wouldn't have happened. And I think that that is, just something that I've seen in my own career, in your career, where there is something so powerful about just trying to be helpful, you know, trying to just be, you know, genuinely interested in, in helping people and good things happen. And so, you know, to everybody listening that isn't on those listservs or message boards, and this is something you didn't have to create that first listserv when you guys all passed around business cards. You didn't have to, you know, hand it over to Casey. You didn't have to answer this question from a random institution in Finland that you never, or you didn't even know they were in Finland, you no. couldn't have ever imagined that uh, it would lead to revenue and an opportunity to have, I'm sure, some really incredible experiences with your daughter. So I think there's there's something powerful about just um, leading with an offer to help without expecting anything in return throughout your career. Yeah. I mean, now that you put it that way, I, it, it's obvious. Um, I think when you're doing it, it's just kind of like, hey, this is an interesting question. Uh, I think I have a, an answer, you know, and you do it. And, and I think if you try too hard, sometimes it doesn't work. But if you're just, you know, being helpful, participating in the community and engaging um, over time, these things do uh, have a way of, of happening. And uh, that's, that's the magic of the network, right? Um, you know, For it, sure. it works, works in mysterious ways. But at the same time, I've got to ask, I mean, you continue to write periodically on Alumni Futures and LinkedIn, right? Nobody, none of us do it as much as we want to, but uh, <laughs> but you do and you spark good conversations. Um, you've probably inspired in a certain regard, people like Ryan Catherwood at Longwood to, all, at Longwood to also, um, you know, start uh, putting out his yeah. own perspective. But yeah. I, I gotta be honest, like when I think about the other people in your field that are sharing their thoughts publicly, you know, I think of Jay Dillon to a certain regard, I, you know, certainly Chris Marshall. Um, but I'm struggling to come up with the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the tenth example. Why is that? Why aren't more people putting ideas out there on platforms like LinkedIn? Um, and maybe you've got some advice to inspire other people who've been thinking about it, but are nervous to hit publish, um, you know, who might see some of those compounding effects over their career you know, if they start it now, what might that mean 10 years from now? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think it may be at least partly because you tend to think that, you know, well, gee, 
I'm, you know, maybe I'm an associate director at a big program or I'm, you know, at something that's well-established and I'm just kind of keeping the flame burning. I'm not innovating or creating or inventing. Um, I actually think people in our profession, which is the one I can speak about from personal experience, is probably true in other professions, don't give themselves enough credit for having innovative ideas or good questions. And I think people have the concept that like, well, I, I can't do a presentation at a conference or write an article for Currents or start a blog or post on LinkedIn unless I have a new idea, unless I have a solution to a problem. That's not true. Um, and you mentioned um, Ryan Catherwood at Longword. You know, just yesterday, Ryan was posting on LinkedIn and I, I left a comment on this article he wrote. And his article was about asking good questions. Yes. We, engage, we engage alumni in our online community, he said, by asking provocative, interesting questions. Um, this has come up periodically ever since social media became a, a thing. Um, but the point is, to your point, asking good questions is just as important. It may be more important than having good answers. Let other people come up with the answers. You need to spark the conversation. So your job isn't to solve everyone's problem. Your job as a professional is to say, what if or how come? And then let that conversation take off from there. So I think part of the reason we don't see more is people think they need to already have the answer. Don't worry yeah, about just that. Wanna, just, you know, ask a good question and sit back and watch the sparks fly. You know, this is a big reveal because this is Andy's secret. And it frustrates me at time because he often asks questions without giving his point of view on the answer. And I want to know, a clue. I don't know, you know, Andy, Andy's recent article. So we'll, we'll link to this, but he wrote about okay. alumni relations in the COVID era. Um, and you wrote some great questions like how do we capture the evolving meaning of engagement in a virtual landscape? You don't even hypothesize what your own answer is. You just put it out there, right? <laughs> what is it that makes our programs relevant? I do want to just press on this. Are class reunions important because they reconnect classmates or because they take place in person? It's challenging. If we do it right, we can enable as much or more reconnection, even without the in-person format. Now, you say that as somebody who leads, I think, one of the, I'm biased, but most incredible on-campus <laughs> weekends experiences that is uh, let's be honest, a massive cost, a massive investment. When you think about Brown's campus dance and the commencement weekend, um, and I think about what are the things that I really, really regret not being able to do during COVID, that is absolutely on the list. But why is that? Is it because it's something about physical? Is it nostalgia? Because I feel young when I'm on campus. I mean, what is it? Yeah, it's interesting. The nostalgia aspect of it is the fuel that has been in the tank of alumni engagement for decades, if not a century or more. And the idea that what you really need your alma mater to do is to remind you about your youth and how much fun it was and the connections that you had and the experiences and to, you know, rekindle that, that has evolved over time to being much more pragmatic and practical, which is what I really need my alma mater to do is help me network because I need a job or I'm switching careers or I'm moving to a new city or I'm trying to choose a grad school. So that transition of, wow, it's all about fond memories at one extreme to, wow, I need a, you know, a, a, a connection in the yeah. software industry on the other end. We're in the middle of that transition, but it's clear what direction it's been moving in. It's been moving towards the practical and away from the Kind of romantic, idealized, you know, nostalgic right. aspect, and and this is important because, to your point, Brown has, over time, like many institutions with long-standing alumni programming traditions, 
invested in face-to-face -face engagement, interaction, on-campus experiences, events in the traditional sense. We went, as I said in my, uh, the article that you, that you referred to on LinkedIn that I wrote um, recently, we went from having primarily face-to-face -face interactions as our mode of engagement to having only virtual and online interactions almost overnight. And for a place like Brown, that actually was not <laughs> as easy or you know, kind of obvious to do um, or how to do it wasn't obvious because we were in a more old fashioned traditional mode, I think. Right. I think a lot of the institutions that have either invested more recently or uh, where student enrollment has grown more recently and so the alumni are younger are the ones actually innovating, coming up with new ideas. And if you look to the all kind of big brand name legacy institutions that we all hear about all the time, that's not necessarily where to go for innovation. I think new ideas, how to get the most out of online interaction, virtual engagement yeah. are going to come out of places that maybe we're already doing this because that was the most cost effective thing to do at a place where you only had one and a half positions dedicated to alumni engagement in the entire institution. So yeah. um, we're both Look beneficiaries of that traditional aspect, but are also in a little bit of, a, to some extent, we're we're kind of victims of being too traditional and we right. have a hard time pivoting now to technology. Well, and, and I think that's where, you know, we, we all know that five years, 10 years from now, whatever advancement alumni relations is, we'll be able to trace it back to 2020 for sure, right? Just given the disruption that we've experienced, uh, the rapid adoption of technology, the new things that we've not, uh, we've been, um, you know, you, you've suggested that there's been a hesitation to have an experimental mindset or put your neck out. Um, historically in this sector, well, that was all removed this year. And we've um, had an opportunity to test new concepts and, and learn. And I, and I think in the spirit of, you know, where, where is the future from here? Um, you know, let's bring it full circle back to your early days in alumni education, right? Trying to take a faculty member on the road. You know, I don't know, you know, let's say you go and the faculty member goes and somebody else goes and you have to book the Venue, I mean, we're talking five, ten thousand dollars at a minimum just to go and do one of those events. We're now a Zoom link away from a global population of a hundred thousand people. What does that mean um, as it relates to being able to scale connectivity virtually? At the same time, the way I think about reunion campus dance, it's like I think about my vacations. I don't want to do my vacations on Zoom. You know, I don't want to zoom into, you know, a, a beach. I want to go to the beach, and I think there's an element of what is it that really can uniquely be delivered physically? And I think campus dance is one of those things that we are all going to be so excited to take part in. And then there are a whole bunch of things like, do I need to do the entrepreneur lunch in Boston where we all, you know, traipse over and, and to a certain, yeah. yeah, maybe I will sometimes, but how can we now bring in students instead of having them all get on a bus and trying to come up to right. Boston to, you know, get some business cards or LinkedIn connections we are now a Zoom link away from every single student at Brown. And I don't think any institution has architected new experiences that are gonna be possible um, to support people throughout their student and alumni life yeah. cycle. That's what I'm excited about. Yeah, we are at the very beginning of doing that effectively. Um, and by effectively, what I mean is up to the standard set by the participants, not by the institution. I think historically we were in a position to say like, well, we're the only ones who can engage alumni because we have the data and the mailing list. So let's decide what we want them to experience. And then we would craft that and invite people. 
that's gone 180. Today, we have to actually stop talking about what we want to do and ask alumni, what do you need? What do you want from your alma mater? What are you trying to accomplish? Um, and as you know, because you actually are the person who inspired us to do this, we've created a position, our alumni success officer position that we filled in May with a young alum, Laura Kenny from the class of 18. Conversations you and I were having led us to realize, wow, we really need, and this is before COVID, we need to ask the class of 2020, what are you trying to do next? Congratulations. Can the alumni network be a resource for whatever it is you want to do in the next phase of your life? So we created that position to reach out to students and new grads right as COVID was affecting the class of 2020's graduation experience, their spring semester, their summer and fall after receiving their diploma. And so thank goodness we actually stuck our necks out and took that plunge because we didn't know if this was a role that actually made sense or not. Well, it sure does now. And just right before I got on this call with you, I had a call with a couple of my team members thinking about, gee, you know, someday in the future, we're going to need to expand and have more of these success yes. officer positions to yes. reach out to even more new grads and into the student population and talk with students before they graduate and so on. Some schools are doing this, I think, in certain ways, but their premise bubbles up from traditional alumni engagement programming. I think where we have to go to your point is to ask what has changed and are the expectations different now that we've gotten better at the technology piece and it's not as yes. difficult or annoying as it used to be. It's still not satisfying for certain kinds of interactions, as you point out, and I'm with you on the beach vacation, by the way. But, um, but the point is, you know, the point is now that we're better at it, how does that evolve and grow into the new mode of engagement in the future? Yeah, I mean, look, w whether you're three years old or 93 years old, you know what Zoom is now. And that, um, that ability to, to be a link away, and we're, we'll post some uh, information just around this alumni success officer concept, because I think that you know, at a time when, you know, and we've been a part of it as well, it's, it's been all about technology. It's been all about automation. It's been all about, you know, digital this and that. Really what we're excited about is how can all of that help create more human to human connection? And also it's getting harder to stand out from the promotions tab and the countless email. I don't care how quote unquote personalized your marketing journey is. If it's email in a promotions tab, it's hard enough to get back to people who are real people. And so I think that's where roles like the alumni success officer can be that human bridge to help bring all of this digital opportunity, whether it's right. alumni education in a digital era, whether it's making sure that people know about um, mentorship opportunities, just having that human to human connection to complement all of the virtual work we think is critical. Um, and obviously that is what it drives $50 billion of revenue at the top of the giving pyramid it always has, right? I mean, it's it's the giving opportunities have always been there, but if there's not a frontline fundraiser who's able to be the conduit to shepherd some of those donations, obviously some would come in no matter what, yeah, but there are but way too many examples where the human to human connection can inspire people to do more. That is obviously very right. high ROI. Yeah. The challenge with the alumni success officer concept is you are basically saying we are going to have a short-term very low return on investment yep. in part because it's the right thing to do. And in part, because we believe that w this will pay off in spades 20, 30, 40 years from in now the long run. Yeah. in the long run. And we all know it, but we are in 
intense budget pressure right now. So I commend you for, you know, making that investment. Obviously, you know, maybe if it wasn't in flight, you know, pre-COVID, it wouldn't have emerged, but it's great that you're seeing some success from that concept. Yeah, we're excited about it. Um, we're seven months into having somebody in that role. Um, the position I will add was initially funded for one year by the office of the president of the university. And she saw the vision um, uh, as a strategic long-term investment the way you just described it. Um, that's true, but in order for that to pay off, we need to continue to fund it. And with our current budget constraints, um, you know, we're gonna have to be creative and, and sort of, um, think fast about the resources available, but I do think there's an understanding that this is a worthwhile investment, even though in the short run, we may not know exactly the way and the extent in which it happens to pay off for, not only for the university, but for the alumni themselves, right? Because they're, they're ultimately the ones who are gonna benefit and we need them to benefit for it to be mutually beneficial. Absolutely. Well, Andy, we need to uh, conclude here, but I've got uh, a couple of last questions. You've referenced mentorship throughout. Uh, you've referenced Robbie Baker Kosak, Steve Grafton, Chris Marshall, um, you know, relationships and mentorship. Um, what advice do you have on the importance of that for our community? And if there are folks listening who maybe don't feel like they've got that network or those relationships, where do you start? Yeah, that's interesting because mentoring is such a hot topic in alumni communities these days. Um, and we tend to talk about it in a structured, systematic, intentional way. I have never participated as a mentor or a mentee in that kind of a program. It's always been a kind of serendipity that has led me to have um, uh, that kind of relationship with somebody professionally. Um, so I, I may not be the person to talk about how to do it in a structured way. I do think though that you can create avenues that lead people to those kinds of relationships. You can encourage and foster not the interaction itself, but the awareness that that kind of interaction is out there for people who are open to it so that you recognize it when it happens. And I think um, I would just encourage people to kind of, if, if you read something online, even if it's one tweet that somebody posts that you thought was pretty good or really interesting, send that person a message and just establish a, a communication. You never yes. know. Um, you never it know. Will, uh, it, will, it will lead to something indirectly that turns out to be valuable in, in the future. And you'll, you'll look back and say, wow, I didn't expect that to happen. I love it. Well, I'd encourage anybody listening, if you found this insightful, look up Andy on LinkedIn, you know, add a connection. Don't do it randomly. Say, I heard you on the podcast right. and I'd love to stay in touch and, you know, maybe uh, take a look at some of his articles. And if you think they're interesting, like I do, share them. Um, you know, last question, I guess I would say is we do have a great audience uh, here, Andy. Anything the Rays community can do to help you? Um, anything top of mind that you're thinking about where, um, you know, if you want smart people uh, providing ideas or connections, what, what comes to mind? Wow. I uh, appreciate you asking that. I mean, uh, I think what, what we need is um, something you already talked about, which is the dialogue, not only within alumni relations professionals, because we do support each other and communicate you know, pretty much. Um, it'll be interesting, by the way, to see in a year of virtual conferences, how some of that networking evolves because we're not gonna be standing in the hallway at the airport right. Marriott, you know? Um, <laughs> but um, I would say that I would love to see more conversation, ideas, discussion, questions about adjacent spaces, not only within higher ed, like, alumni relations, what's its place in 
relationship to student instruction and the curriculum, career services, the rest of advancement, but even outside of higher ed, which is that there are alumni tight communities in all kinds of organizations now where people who used to be grantees of a foundation or people who are, um, I sat next to a, a military veteran on a flight once who said to me, what do you do? And when I told him, he said, oh, I'm an alum, I'm a military veteran. You know, I was a Marine Corps veteran. And it never occurred to me, right? Veterans are an alumni community, right? Uh, it's obvious when you say it, but we don't think of it that way. I'm interested in how our profession can learn from adjacent parallel types of organizations and institutions that have alumni type communities, even if that's not what we call them. So um, I encourage those conversations and I hope you're, I expect you're getting people from those sectors as well as, as part, sure. of your, part of your audience. For sure. Well, Andy, uh, I have enjoyed our conversations over the last 10 years. I look forward to our future conversations. I'd encourage everybody listening uh, to follow Andy on Twitter, look him up on LinkedIn, provide a thoughtful message. I'm sure if you just hit connect, he will reject your connection. Um, you got to be able to at least just share something uh, personal. But, uh, but um, you know, in, in all seriousness, uh, Andy, thank you so much. And with that, uh, Brent signing off with today's guest, Andy Shandlin, the Vice President of Alumni Relations at the number one university in the world, Brown University. Thank you, Brent. Cheers. We got